Illustrated, the podcast for people who really fancy a good story. I'm Emily. And I'm Rebecca. And we have for you today our spooky season episode. So we have lots of little Halloween themed bits and pieces for you this week. And Emily, as you can hear, is absolutely buzzing. (laughs) (laughs) It's my season. (laughs) It's our time to shine. (laughs) So yeah, let's just go for it. What are you infatuated with? So I haven't read anything super spooky recently, so this isn't like the most Halloweeny read, but it is like gothicy, fairy taley. So it's a nice. good seasonal read, and it's for the wolf by Hannah Witten. Oh, I love the cover. Yeah, it's also really floppy. Oh, <laughs> do that in the microphone. <laughs> it's got a good flow which we know I enjoy <laughs> um, so yeah this book came out this year 2021 and it is the first in the Wilderwood duology and it is a gothic Red Riding Hood retelling or like less of a retelling and more of a like inspired by mm. but yeah I picked this up on a bit of a whim actually I didn't know much about it but I really loved it Nice. so in this world we're introduced to the kingdom of Valeda, which I'm probably saying wrong. And before I even explain the plot, I'm going to read out the little like prelude mm. to the book. To escape the will of the kings, they fled into the far reaches of the Wilderwood. They pledged that were the forest to offer them shelter. They would give them all they had for as long as their line continued, let it grow within their bones, and offer it succour. This they pledged through blood willingly given their sacrifice and bond. The Wilderwood accepted to their bargain and they stayed within its border to guard it and hold it fast against the things bound beneath. And every second daughter and every wolf to come after would adhere to the bargain and the call and the mark. Upon the tree where they made their pledge, these words appeared and I have saved the bark on which it is written. The first daughter is for the throne the second daughter is for the wolf, and the wolves are for the Wilderwood. And that was Tiernan Neria Angeline of House Angeline, first daughter of Valeda, year one of the binding. Ooh! <laughs> it's a very intriguing way to start a book, isn't it? It is. I love a prophecy. <laughs> yeah, me too. And obviously, because it's a prophecy, it is purposefully like a bit vague, mm. and I want to kind of discuss that in a second. Um, but essentially... For reasons, <laughs> the second daughter born in this, you know, royal line in this kingdom gets sent to the Wilderwood, to the wolf, as a sacrifice. And the hope is that with that sacrifice, the wolf will release these five kings, who are basically like gods, that he has been holding hostage for centuries. But as I said, this is quite vague, and it's a running theme throughout the book that every time Red says, you know, this is what we're taught growing up, like, this is a religion. She finds out it didn't happen that way. Um, so, for example, when she first meets the wolf, she asks him if he'll let the kings go, now that she's there. And he's like, oh, are they still on about that? <laughs> <laughs> so I just think it's a very clever theme to have in a book that already has its origins, like, in another story. Yeah. So, yeah, this book does follow Red, the second daughter, as she sacrificed to the wolf. The wolf is called Eamon. We love him. <laughs> and her older sister, Neve is destined for the throne to continue the royal line. 
And essentially the plot of the book is Red learning about the magic which she now has that connects her to the Wilderwood. She learns that it's not necessarily this like scary thing and in a similar way her relationship with Eamon grows. And then you also have Neve's perspective who begins to go down this dark path because she believes that she has to rescue her sister from the Wilderwood and will do that by any means possible. Oh, So good. So there's lots of very interesting gothic themes in this book. You've got that like gothic doppelganger theme which is really prominent. There's lots of doubling and deception and like people with multiple names and titles. And I don't know much about the botanical gothic except that it is a thing. Um, but I feel like this book must fit into that somehow because it does have themes of like nature taking back control. Oh, I love that. Which, which I think is a botanical gothic thing, but don't quote me on that. Botanical gothic, that's like our flat's aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> but yeah, I don't want to focus too much on the plot today because I do think it's one of those ones that's maybe best to go in not knowing too much about it and just kind of join Red on the ride. Mm. And also, most of my quotes today are about the setting, because that was what stood out to me. So I'm just going to go for those quotes today. Nice. So I have a couple from very early on, where Red first enters the Wilderwood. And this first one is Red having just been forced to walk into the woods, and she's got lost. (laughs) Red doesn't know how long she'd been walking when the thicket rose before her grown up around one of the white trees. Short, scrubby bushes wrapped the trunk, thorns pointed outward at wicked angles. Through the close growth, Red could barely see the black rot spreading up the tree, crawling towards the clustered branches at the top. A thorn caught in her hood as she tried to skirt around the thicket, one she'd swear hadn't been there before. The crimson fabric pulled back from her face. Another dagger-sharp thorn drew a bloody line down her cheekbone. Red clapped her hand to the wind, but the damage was done. A bead of blood rolled slowly down the thorn, coming to its end and dropping to another, ever closer to the dark, ravaged trunk of the white tree. If she tried to reach through the tangle and smear it away, she'd only catch more thorns, spill more blood. So Red stood and watched and waited, dread rolling beneath her ribs. Her blood touched the white trunk, hesitated. Then the tree absorbed it, took it in like water to part soil. Tripping over leaves, Red backed away from the tree until she collided with another, this one also thin and pale, also twisted with black rot. Underbrush tangled in her skirts and Red tore herself away, the rip unnaturally loud in the silent forest. That sound again, reverberating up from the forest floor, Rustling leaves and stretching vines and clattering twigs cobbling themselves into something like a voice. Something she didn't so much hear as feel. It boiled up from her centre, from the shard of magic she kept lashed down through white-knuckle effort. Finally, it's been only one for so long. A tree limb broke from a trunk, fell to the forest floor. It shriveled at once, years of decay packed into seconds, leaving nothing but a desiccated husk. Red's teeth hummed, the hairs in her arms standing on end. Branches arched toward her, roots slithered beneath her feet, and she stood frozen as a deer in the path of an arrow. This was what she'd prepared for, in the deepest parts of her mind, 
the places she didn't have to look at too closely. She denied it to Neve, saying they didn't know what happened to the second daughters who crossed the border. But she'd known there could be nothing here but death, and she thought she'd prepared for it. Now that it waited, shaped like clawed branches and twisted roots, she realised that preparation wasn't acceptance. All the quiet acquiescence she swallowed over twenty years erupted, spilled over, drove her teeth together not in fear, but in rage. She wanted to live and damn the things that said she shouldn't. So Red ran. Vine swung for her, the leaf-strewn ground buckling to trip her feet. The white trees bent and arched as if fighting against invisible bonds, screaming for release. Like the forest was an animal desperate for her blood, and something held it back. Finally, Red reached a clearing. White trees ringed it, quivering, but she ran to the centre, where the ground was only moss and dirt. Her knees hit the soil, her breath rasped, skirt and tatters and twigs in her hair. The moment of calm shattered with the sound of splintering wood, one of the white trunks slowly splitting like a smile cutting from one side of a mouth to the other. The trunk opened wider, gleaming with sap-dripping fangs. One by one, smiles cut across the other trunks, smiles full of teeth, smiles that wanted blood. Red lurched up on shaky legs, started running again. Her feet were numb, a stitch pulled at her side, but she ran on and on. Eventually, her knees gave out, vision narrowed to a pinprick. Red collapsed in a pile of leaves, forehead pressed to the ground. Maybe this was the fulfilling of the bargain. The stories of Gaia's body, riddled with root and rot. Maybe the wolf wouldn't decide whether or not she was an acceptable sacrifice until after his wilderwood consumed her, like it had consumed Gaia in the end, waiting to see if it spat out the kings in return. Maybe he'd be the one holding it back as she ran, whetting its appetite with the chase to unleash it when she was spent. Red's eyes closed against the expectation of teeth in her neck. A minute. Two. Nothing happened. Sweat sticking her hair to her face, she looked up. An iron gate rose from the ground. Double her height, it stretched from side to side, curving around before disappearing into the gloom. Pieces of a castle showed through gaps in the metal. A tower, a turret, a ruin half consumed by the forest around it, but it was something. Red stood on shaky legs. Slowly, she pressed her hands to the gate. Ooh. <laughs> so much in there. I know. <laughs> well, first of all, the trees that like split into smiles, that's disturbing. I love that image. Yeah. And yeah, as I'm sure you can tell, this is no ordinary wood. <laughs> it's alive in the ways that trees are not normally alive. And I love that you have this scene that's kind of, it reminds me of that scene in Snow White where she's like running through the woods mm. and they seem to like come alive. Yeah. But like they're not. But like in this book they do <laughs> yeah it's not your imagination <laughs> and yeah i have this passage from a few pages later so she's found the castle now which is her new home and this is also our first glimpse of the wolf and it reminds me of another fairy tale which you will probably understand pretty soon okay the ruined castle rose from fog and shadow reaching almost as tall as the surrounding trees once it might have been grand, but now the walls looked to be more moss than stone. A long corridor stretched to her left, ending in a jumble of broken rock. Directly ahead, a tower speared the sky, 
weathered wooden door in its centre. What looked like a large room was built onto its right side, in considerably better repair than the corridor. Crumbling piles of stone dotted the landscape, remnants of collapsed battlements, fallen turrets. No white trees grew past the gate. The tremble in her legs steadied. Red wasn't sure what safety looked like here, but for now being away from the trees was enough. The slice in her cheekbone still stung. Hissing, Red gingerly touched the cut. Her fingers came away stained with watery blood. Ahead of her, the weathered door loomed. He was somewhere in there. She could feel it, almost, an awareness that pricked at the back of her neck, plucked at the mark in her arm. The wolf, the keeper of the Wilderwood, an alleged jailer of gods. She had no idea what he'd do with her now that she was here. Maybe she'd escaped his forest only to be thrown back in, the wolf making sure the bloodthirsty trees finished whatever they'd started. But the only other option was to stay out here, in a chilled, unnatural twilight, waiting to see if the iron gate would be enough to hold the Wilderwood back. Well, damn the mists. She was just as much a part of those stories as he was, and if her destruction was imminent, she'd rather be the architect than the bystander. Hitching her bag on her shoulder, Red strode forward and shoved the door open. She expected darkness and rot for the inside of the castle to look as uninhabited as the outside, and it would have, were it not for the sconces. No, not quite sconces. What she'd thought was a sconce was actually a woody vine, snaking around the nearly circular walls. Flames burned at equidistant points along its length, but the vine itself wasn't consumed, and the flames didn't spread farther. She couldn't even see char marks, as if the flames were simply being held there, anchored to the wood through some invisible bond. However strange the light was, it illuminated her surroundings. She stood in a cavernous foyer underneath a high, dome ceiling. A cracked solarium window filtered twilight over her feet. Emerald moss carpeted the floor, clustered with toadstools. Before her, a staircase, moss covering the first two steps, leading up to a balcony ringing the top of the tower. She could barely make out the impressions of vines for the shadows, twining over the railing, dripping toward the floor. The corridor she'd seen from outside stretched to the left of the staircase, and the sunken room to the right, its arched entrance broken at the top. All of it was empty. Red's boots made soft shushing noises against the moss as she stepped forward. When she looked more closely, there were signs of occupancy. A dark cloak hung on the knob of the staircase, three pairs of scuffed boots sat by the broken archway into the other room. But nothing moved in the room, and everything was unnaturally silent. Red frowned. Behind her, a light blinked out. Slowly, Red looked over her shoulder. Another flame along the strange vine extinguished. She almost tripped in her haste toward the staircase, noting as she put her foot on the bottom step that there was no light up there at all. Red backpedaled, changed direction, wheeling around the stairs. Light glimmered ahead of her, flames lining another staircase, this one leading down instead of up. Red ran towards it, the room around her plunging rapidly into twilight. The last flame blinked out as she reached the stairs. She paused, breathing hard, waiting to see if the lights before her would do the same. But the flames remained upright and glowing, lit along another strange, unburnt vine. The carpet of moss covered the first few steps here too, 
but soon it gave way to thin roots, crisscrossing over the stones like veins. Red kept her eyes on her feet to keep from tripping, counting her steps as a mainstay against panic. The stairs ended on a small landing, housing a wooden door and nothing else. Red pushed it open before she could talk herself out of it. It didn't creak. Warm, friendly light flooded to the edges of the door, seeped onto the landing like a rising sun. Red stepped in as silently as she could. She froze, familiarity first a blade, then a bam. A library. Back, she stopped herself before she thought the word home. It would hurt too badly and didn't feel wholly accurate anyway. Back in Valeda, the library had been one of the places she'd spent the majority of her time. Neve had lessons most days, things beyond simple writing and arithmetic Red had been taught, so Red was left largely to herself. She read most everything in the palace library, some things twice. It was one of the few ways to soothe her mind when it started churning and spilling over itself, connecting fears and spiderwebs she couldn't disentangle. The scent of paper, the orderliness of printed words, the sensation of page edges beneath her fingers smoothed the waves of her thoughts to placidity. Most of the time, anyway. The presence of books was really the only similarity between the palace library and this one. Overstuffed shelves stood in straight rows. Books cluttered small tables and a pile of them stood precariously by the door, topped with a half-fill mug of what smelled like coffee. Candles with strangely unwavering flames gave the room a golden glow. Wait, not candles. Shards of wood, curiously unburnt, same as the vine above. Her bag fell to the floor with a muffled thunk. Red held her breath for half a second, but nothing stirred in the stacks. The sound she made might have been a laugh had there been more force and less fear behind it. A library in the depths of the Wilderwood. Cautiously, she stepped forward, trailing her hands over book spines. The scent of dust and old paper tickled her nose, but there was no trace of mildew, and all the books seemed cared for, even the ones that looked impossibly old. Someone was minding this library then, much better than they seemed to be minding the rest of the castle. Most of the titles she recognised. The palace library carried a renowned collection, second only to the great library in Kerseka at the southernmost tip of the continent. Monuments of the Lost Age of Magic, a history of realtist trade routes, treaties on magician democracy. Up and down the rows she wandered, letting the familiar sights and smells of a library seep the broken glass feeling from her eyes. She was almost calm when she reached the end of the fifth row. Then she saw him. Red's breath came in a quick, sharp gasp, ripping the quiet in two. She pushed her hand against her mouth like she could force the sound back in. The figure at the table didn't seem to notice. His head bent over an open book, hands moving as a pen scratched over paper. The lines of his shoulders spoke of strength, but that of only a man rather than a monster. The fingers holding the pen were long and elegant, not clawed. Still, there was something otherworldly in the shape of him, something that hinted at humanity but didn't quite arrive there. I don't have horns, if that's what you're wondering. He turned while she was staring at his hands. The wolf narrowed his eyes. You must be the second daughter. Tale as old as time. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man. I love a library and a castle. Mm-hmm. Also that 
like foyer with the moss and the toadstools yeah. and the vines. What a mood. I know, I thought you'd like that. I enjoy <laughs> that. I also really like the line about where she was like, I'm as much a part of this story as mm-hmm. he is. Yeah. Which is like a running theme, like, because they both have this magic. I'm going to talk about this in a minute, but they both have this like magic, and he's like, I'll deal with it. <laughs> and she's like, uh uh-uh. uh. Like, I'm here now. You don't need to take all the strain. Mm. We can both do it. And I'm like, yeah. Love, love that. Love it. <laughs> Equality. <laughs> so, yeah, I like this bit. I like how this building's basically only standing because it's, like, being held up by the wood around it and the little magical, like, vines with their mm. candles. It's very cute. I also love how the trees are taller than the castle, though, because that's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then obviously we have Eamon, who even in this glimpse is like such a contrast to this like monster who you've been told about, who like captures these second daughters and like who knows what he does with them, they end up dead. Mm. So like, you know, it's assumed that it's him that kills them. Yes. And yeah, no, he's not like exactly human, but he's more of like a man than a wolf, which I just think is a great use of like that theme I mentioned before of like all the stories that they're told aren't accurate. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, finally, I wanted to share a passage about the way the magic works in this book. So as I just said, Red has this magic which connects her to the Wilderwood, as does Eamon. But for a lot of the book, he refuses to teach her. He doesn't want her, like, getting into danger. But, like, without spoiling too much, the wood is kind of dying. There are certain trees that get this shadow rot over them, which was, like, mentioned in that first quote I read Mm. out. Um, and only Eamon and Red's magic can cure it. Okay. And what I like about the magic in this book is that I can actually picture it. Because sometimes you just read a fantasy book and you're like, they just seem to have this power and it does the thing. And you're like, but how did that work? Or at least that's what I think. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this... I'll read out this quote for you to see what I mean. And when they use the word sentinel, they mean, like, the white trees that get okay. the shadow roll on them. This is quite spooky. This is this is suitably spooky. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> From my faint little heart. <laughs> if sentinels are bricks in the wall, we're the mortar. Eamon's eyes shifted from her to the white tree. Our magic is a piece of the wilderwood, so is a sentinel. To heal it, we pour our power into it, channel it back to the source. The wilderwood strengthens and strengthens us in turn. Rain feeding a river that evaporates to become the rain again. A cycle. There is a synchronicity to it. Cycles of wolves, cycles of second daughters, cycles of grief. Exactly, Eamon said softly. You just let the magic move through you. Let it go. The sentinel buzzed under her hand. Something gathered behind the bark, an energy drawn to her, pushing forward. Apprehension danced with anticipation in her middle. It must have shown on her face. Eamon shook his head. You don't... No, I can do it. Red concentrated on the rush in her veins, the warmth of the bark under her palm. She made her breath slow, counted her metronome heartbeats until they were in even rhythm. Eamon next to her, Eamon needing help, smoothed the chaotic ocean of her power to placid water as she closed her eyes. Deep green spilled through her mind, changing the shade of the darkness behind her eyelids. It painted her thoughts in shades of sea foam and emerald, lit in the very centre by a soft golden glow. 
The more she concentrated, the clearer it grew. The glow was the sapling, a shining shape in a sea of shining shapes. A golden network of tall, straight trees with deep roots, bright lights casting enough shadow to hold a world. Some sentinels were dimmer than others. Those weakened were candle flames, while the sentinels holding strong flared bonfire bright. Their roots were a knotted riot, jagged lines of gold. But all of them led to a familiar shape, their vast network collecting in a frame she knew. Amen. As part of the Wilderwood as any sentinel, roots winding through him like he was their soil. Man tangled inextricably with forest, equal parts branch and bone. Half consumed in a Wilderwood, but not drained, not like his mother or father or the second daughters. Holding it all with a strength she couldn't quite fathom, a determination that awed and frightened her at once. He wasn't human. She'd known that, seen it proven over and over. He was something different, as mysterious as the forest he inhabited, the forest that inhabited him. This was the first time the reminder made her chest ache. Red? He sounded so tentative. She pressed her fingers into the trunk like he might be able to feel it, a reassuring pressure. I'm fine. A pause stretched long as her mind's eye surveyed him, the seed from which all the wilderwood bloomed. It's beautiful. Silence. The forest seemed to hold its breath. Follow my lead, Eamon said finally. Then his golden form and her thoughts flashed bright. Liquid light seeped out of him, along the shining network he was tied to, going instead to the sentinel. Gently, like a flower opening to the sun, Red let her power grow. It flowed up through her centre and spilled out her palms, calmed and given purpose by Eamon's closeness. The light she let go wasn't as bright as Eamon's, but it was no less welcome. The sentinel before them slowly brightened, its flickering candle flame gaining strength as their light drowned out the shadow. Red stood with her hands pressed against the white tree and let the magic cycle, the rain feeding the river. As the dim figure of the sentinel brightened in her mind's eye, she felt golden power flowing into her too. At first, it made her start, spiked fear along her shoulder blades. But the Wilderwood, for now, wasn't interested in conquest. She was just a part of the cycle, a rung in the wheel. The bright, thin filament of magic it had left in her glowed, winding languidly around her bones. It felt good. Good, and this was the first time she really believed it, despite the insistence from Eamon and Fife that the Sentinels weren't malicious for all their want of her. It felt too simple a concept for such a complicated thing, but they were in accord, she and the Wilderwood, at least on the most basic level. They wanted the same things. It was bent on its own survival, its own need. She thought of running through the forest on her birthday, a fierce desire deep in her gut to live. That's what she felt from the sentinel, from the wilderwood it was attached to, a deep, reckless determination to live. When the sentinel was gone and her palm touched Eamon's instead of bark, she had no idea how much time had passed. Her eyes opened, banishing the shining network of the wilderwood to see the man instead. He watched her with his brows slashed low, full mouth slightly parted, black hair falling over his forehead. The whites of his eyes were traced faintly in emerald, his shadow longer on the ground than it had been before, the edges feathered like leaves. 
He'd rolled up his long sleeves and the bark sheathed his forearms again. Eamon didn't try to hide the changes magic wrought in him. He stood there, still, and let her see. Her wrists pressed close to his, the network of her veins outlined in green. The urge to cover them was instinctual, but Red kept her hand steady. If he wasn't hiding, then she wasn't either. What they'd just done healed the Wilderwood, if only a small part of it, together and unbloodied, wrought honesty from them both. Slowly, the green in his eyes faded. Bark disappeared, revealing only scarred skin. His height lessened, the edges of his shadow on the ground grew more solid. No permanent changes, not this time, though that previous extra height lingered. Just another scar, another mark made for the forest. He watched her a moment longer, the severe lines of his face unreadable as the veins winding up her arms faded back to blue. Then Eamon dropped his hand from hers and turned away. Red pressed her palm against her thigh, banishing the lingering warmth of his touch. At their feet, where the sentinel had been, there was only unbroken moss. Looks like it worked. Eamon made a low sound of affirmation. Red followed his gaze. Right beyond the gate, within the line of the other trees, the sapling grew. Only it wasn't a sapling now. It was full-grown, thick-trunked. Leaves bloomed from the white branches clustered around its crown, vibrant and green. Looks like it did. There was something like wonder in his face, and it transformed the harsh lines of it, backlit by forest and mist. Hidden beneath Red's sleeve, the bargainer's mark twinged. She pressed her hand against it fleetingly and forced her gaze back to the sentinel, away from him. Already the green leaves had dulled, muted. One let loose from a branch, drifted to the forest floor. Eamon hissed in a breath. She'd seen the forest woven into him, rooted between his bones. Its failing hurt him. Aww. <laughs> he just loves his trees, man. I love this man. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I feel like this entire book just needs like Hosier's like self-titled album yes. like played over it. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting big in a week vibes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, it's just it's just very pretty and I don't actually have a lot to say about it other than like I like that you can picture the magic. Yeah, that is the most intricate and sensible magic that I have heard of for yeah. ages. And I like that the Wilderwood is inside them. Like mm. you can see it especially with Amen. Like, he gets the bark on his arms and his shadow, like, looks like leaves. And, like, when he bleeds, there's, like, sap mixed in with his blood. Um, and, like, leaves will, like, sprout out of cuts and stuff. So it's, like, a really good balancing act between, like, bodily horror, mm. but, like, very pretty <laughs> natural imagery. Yeah. It's, like, a really weird mix, and I mean that in a good way. So yeah, that's kind of all I have to say uh, on For the Wolf. The second novel is called For the Throne, which is a clever title, mm. uh, which I think is out next year, and it sounds like it'll focus more on Neve, the first daughter. I'm also not going to say how this book ended, but like it did finish at a really interesting point, so I'm excited to read on. So yeah, if you're looking for like a spooky season, autumn, winter read, this is a great one. There's loads of great character moments in it, which I've not really talked about. But, like, the banter between Red and Eamon's really good. And I really like their relationship. And Red's red cloak is also great, but I can't say why because of spoilers. I do love a Red Riding Hood 
themed yeah novel story whatever yeah no definitely highly recommend nice <laughs> i enjoyed that yeah it's, it's taurus vibes yeah <laughs> love a tree <laughs> And what are you infatuated with this week? My infatuation... <laughs> I'm so infatuated I can't even speak. Um, my infatuation this week is the bizarre, but I say this with love, mm. and at times creepy, Little by Edward Carey. Mm. Um, it's this ridiculously expansive story. It's not even that big a book. It's like 400 pages, mm. but it spans the whole lifetime of the main character, Little. Mm-hmm. Um, and because of that, I'm just going to read you the blurb instead of trying to describe the plot, because I can't. <laughs> so this is the blurb. There is a space between life and death. It's called Waxworks. Born in Alsaki in 1761, the unsightly, diminutive Marie Groscholtz is quickly nicknamed Little. Orphaned at the age of six, she finds employment in the household of reclusive anatomist Dr. Curtius. Her role soon surpasses that of mere servant as the eccentric doctor takes an interest in his newfound companion and begins to instruct her in the fine art of wax modelling. From the gutters of pre-revolutionary France to the luxury of the Palace of Versailles, from clutching the still warm heads of the terror to finding something very like love, Little traces the improbable fortunes of a blood-stained crumb of a thing who went on to shape the world. This sounds like my kind of book. Oh, the no only idea. the only thing is though, like I have a weird fear of like mannequins and waxworks and stuff. So will I be disturbed? But so do I. But no, let me tell you why. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, I just want to draw attention to the pun of a crumb of a thing who went on to shape the world mm. because. You might have guessed this from this description, but in case you didn't, this is the story of Madame Tussaud. Mm. So, although it is fictionalised, it's based on what we know about the woman who became Madame Tussaud. Ah, that's cool. And a lot of the research from it came from Paris guidebooks written by a guy called Mercier, who is a character in the book, which is just a nice little aside. But it's told from Little's point of view. But what is great about this story is that the writing is so strong that it doesn't really matter that it's Madame Tussaud. Mm-hmm. That doesn't really come into it. Yeah. It's just really immersive. And yeah, you it, if you didn't know that, it would make a difference to your experience of the story. Yeah, it sounds like it was another sort of inspired by yeah. rather than... Yeah. Yeah. But obviously, like, real history does come into it because it's, like, during the terror and the revolution and all of this. Mm-hmm. So there are, like... There are real people, but they're fictionalised real people. Yeah. I'm also scared of mannequins and wax dolls. <laughs> um, but I think probably my favourite thing about this book, the thing that's like made it my top read of the year, because it is 100% my top read of the year, and mm. I'm calling that in September, Okay. is that the things in it that should be scary or creepy are really, really adorable and charming (laughs) they're the things that are imbued with like all the humanity Uh and it's the humans that are terrifying Mm, so it kind of flips it yeah but yeah honestly like just a a small gush i wish i'd never read this so that i could read it for the first time again like (laughs) i cannot explain how much i love this book so i'm gonna read out i honestly don't have a point to my discussion (laughs) because i'm like 
Just fucking read it. It's so good. <laughs> the thing that I love most was the writing style. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just going to read out a few of my favourite passages and I've picked ones that are a little bit strange or a little bit spooky um, okay. just to go with the theme. But the first one isn't really spooky and it's the very first chapter and I'm going to just read that out because I think that it gives you a really good sense of the writing style. Okay. First I'm going to read the little um, prelude as well because I think it's good. The extraordinary life and historic adventures of a servant called Little, containing travels across three countries, lost children, lost parents, ghosts of monkeys, tailors' dummies, wooden dolls, an artificial populace, one king, two princesses, seven doctors, the man who walked all over Paris, the man who was sewn and stuffed with wadding, his mother a mogul, the man who collected murderers, famous philosophers, heroes and monsters, every one of significance, several houses, each bigger than the last, progress, retreat, a large family, scenes of historical import, famous people, ordinary people, love, hate, massacres of innocence, murders witnessed, bodies taken apart, blood on the streets, misery, prison, loss of everything, marriage, memories captured and contained, calamity daily exhibited, history owned, written by herself. <laughs> wow. Which I just think is a good a good intro. Yes, definitely. So this is the first chapter and it's called A Little Village from my birth until I'm six years old. Um, chapter one, in which I am born and in which I describe my mother and father. <laughs> in the same year that the five-year-old Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart wrote his minuet for the harpsichord, in the precise year when the British captured Pondicherry in India from the French, in the exact same year in which the melody for Twinkle Twinkle Little Star was first published, in that very year, which is to say 1761, whilst in the city of Paris people at their salons told tales of beasts in castles and men with blue beards and beauties that would not wake and cats in boots and slippers made of glass and youngest children with tufts in their hair and daughters wrapped in donkey skin and whilst in London people at their clubs discussed the coronation of King George III and Queen Charlotte many miles away from all this activity in a small village in El Sachi in the presence of a ruddy midwife two village maids and a terrified mother was born a certain undersized baby. Anna Marie Groschultz was the name given to that hurriedly christened child, though I would be referred to simply as Marie. I was not much bigger at first than the size of my mother's little hands put together and I was not expected to live very long. And yet, after I survived my first night, I went on, despite contrary predictions, to breathe through my first week. After that, my heart still kept time, without interruption, throughout my first month pig-headed, pocket-sized thing. My lonely mother was 18 years old at my birth, a small woman, a little under five foot, marked by being the daughter of a priest. This priest, my grandfather, made a widower by smallpox, had been a very strict man, a fury in black cloth, who never let his daughter out of his sight. After he died, my mother's life changed. Mother began to meet people, villagers who called upon her, and among them was a soldier. This soldier, a bachelor somewhat beyond the customary age, possessing a sombre temperament brought on by witnessing so many appalling things and losing so many soldier friends, took a fancy to mother. He thought they could be happy, so to speak, being sad together. Her name was Anna Marie Waltner. His name was Joseph George Groschultz. They were married, my mother and my father. Here was loving and here was joy. My mother had a large nose in the Roman style. My father, so I would come to believe, had a strong chin that pointed a little upward. 
That chin and that nose, it seems, fitted together. After a little while, however, father's furlough was over and he returned to war. Mother's nose and father's chin had known each other for three weeks. I was born of love. The love my father and mother had for each other was forever present on my face. I was born with both the Waltner nose and the Groschultz chin. Each attribute was a noteworthy thing on its own and nicely gave character to the faces of those two families. Combined, the result was a little ungainly, as if I were showing more flesh than was my personal due. Children will grow how they will. Some distinguish themselves as prodigies of hair growth or cut teeth at a wonderfully young age. Some are freckled all over. Others arrive so pale that their white nakedness is a shock to all who witness it. I nosed and chinned my way into life. I was certainly unaware then of what extraordinary bodies I should come to know, of what vast buildings I would inhabit, of what bloody events I would find myself trapped within. And yet it seems to me my nose and chin already had some inkling of it all. Nose and chin, such an armour for life. Nose and chin, such companions. To begin with, for always, there was love. Since girls of my stamp were not schooled, it was mother who gave me my education through God. The Bible was my primer. Elsewise I brought in logs, looking for kindling in the woods, washed plates and clothes, cut vegetables, fetched meat. I swept, I cleaned, I carried. I was always busy. Mother taught me industry. If my mother was busy, she was happy. It was when she stopped that uncertainty caught up with her, only to be dispelled by some new activity. She was constantly in motion and movement suited her well. Discover, she would say, what you can do. You'll always find something. One day your father will return and he'll see what a good and useful child you are. Thank you, mother. I shall be most useful. I do wish it. What a creature you are. Am I? A creature? Yes, my own little creature. Mother brushed my hair with extraordinary vigour. Sometimes she touched my cheek or patted my bonnet. She was probably not very beautiful, but I thought her so. She had a small mole just beneath one of her eyes. I wish I could remember her smile. I do know she had one. By the age of five, I had grown to the height of the old dog in the house next to ours. Later, I would be the height of doorknobs, which I liked to rub. Later still, and here I would stop, I would be the height of many people's hearts. Women observing me in the village were sometimes heard to mutter as they kissed me, finding a husband will not be easy. On my fifth birthday, my dear mother gave me a doll. This was Marta. I named her myself. I knew her little body, about a sixth of the size of my own. I learned it entirely as I moved it about, sometimes roughly, sometimes with great tenderness. She came to me naked and without a face. She was a collection of seven wooden pegs, which could be assembled in a certain order to roughly resemble the human figure. Marta, save my mother, was my first intimate connection with the world. I was never without her. We were happy together. Mother, Marta and me. Oh, there's so much to love about this. Yeah. I love that she has, like, she goes into so much detail about her face, like the nose and the chin. Because, like, obviously she then later, her whole life is will be studying faces. faces and, like, making them. So, like, obviously you would pay attention to your own face as well. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love it because it sounds like a storybook but you know that there's going to be so much woe because that it says we were happy. Yeah, yeah. So you know that it's going to get sad. Um, but yeah, like you say, you've got the preoccupation with body parts and facial features and like, I don't know, I love that it's just so, so strangely preoccupied mm. with with body parts. Mm-hmm. Like, 
the whole bit about the nose and the chin fitting together I think mm-hmm. is just so sweet. Yeah. That tone continues all the way through and she sees the world all the way through even before the waxworks in this way of like looking at features. Yeah. Um, which I just think is really nice because it takes you right into the mind of an artist. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, she really doubles down on this though when she meets my favourite character who is the wax master Dr Curtius. Okay. I'd also love to point out that Dr. Curtius is spelt C-U-R-T, as in being Kurt, mm. but also it's, the full word is Curtius, and yeah. that is such a good pun when you learn his personality, which you're <laughs> about to. So Little and her mother are sent to be servants to this mysterious doctor, but when they get to the hospital, they find that he doesn't live there like all the other doctors, and this is what happens when they get to his house. It's a little bit longer, but it is worth it. Okay. Here's your spooky house. Spooky house one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We put down our trunk. Mother sat down on it and looked at the door, as if perfectly content to find it closed. And so it was I who stepped forward and knocked three times. Four. And finally the door opened, but no one came out into the night. It remained open, and no one came to meet us. I waited for a while with Mother until I tugged on her hand and she at last gathered herself up and we, with our trunk, stepped inside. Mother quietly closed the door behind us. I took a good handful of her dress. We looked about in the shadows. Suddenly Mother gasped. Over there! Someone was lurking in the corner. It was a very thin, long man. So thin he seemed in the last terrible stages of starvation. So long his head nearly touched the ceiling. A pale, ghostly face... The meagre candlelight in the room trembled about it, showing hollows in the place of cheeks, showing moist eyes, showing small wisps of dark, greasy hair. We stood by our trunk as if for protection. I came for Dr Curtius, Mother explained. A long silence, and in that silence the head nodded, barely. I wish to see him, she said. There was a slight noise from the head. It may have been yes. May I see him? Quietly, slowly, as if it were a coincidence, the head volunteered. My name is Curtius. I am Anna Maria Groschultz, said Mother, trying to hold on to herself. Yes, said the man. The introductions exhausted, another silence followed. At last, the man in the corner spoke again, very slowly. I... You see, I... I'm not so very used to people. I haven't had much practice lately. I'm very out of practice. And you need to have people around. You need to have people to talk to. Or you might forget, you see, how they are exactly and in truth what to do with them. But that'll change now, with you here. Won't it? There was a longer silence. Shall I, perhaps, if you're ready, shall I show you the house now? Mother, a great unhappy look on her face, nodded. Yes, perhaps you'd like to see it. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. I meant to say that before. Welcome. I meant to say that when you first arrived. I had the word ready. I was thinking of it all day. But then, ah, I forgot. I'm not used. You see, not used, said the doctor and slowly unravelled himself from his corner. He seemed made of rods, of broom handles, of great lengths, tall and thin, 
unfolding the great length of himself as if he were a spider. We followed, keeping our distance. There's a room at the top just for you, said Curtius, pointing the candle up the stairs. For you alone. I'll never go up there. I do so hope you'll be happy. Then, with more confidence, please, please come this way. Dr. Curtius opened a door off the hall, and we stepped into a small passageway. At the end of it was another door, a little light glowing from underneath. This was surely where the doctor had been when I knocked. This room, said Curtius, is where I work. Curtius stopped in front of it, the great length of his narrow back towards us. He paused, straightened himself as much as he could, then spoke slowly and precisely. Please to come in. Ten or more shielded candles were burning inside the room, illuminating it wonderfully, showing us a place so cluttered it was impossible to understand at first. Long shelves were filled with corked bottles, inside them colours in powder. Other shorter shelves contained different, thicker bottles. These had more persuasive glass stoppers, hinting at the possibly fatal personality of the viscous liquids they contained. Black or brown or transparent. There were boxes filled with hair. It looked like, wasn't it? Human hair. Positioned across the length of a trestle table were various copper vats and several hundred small modelling tools, some with sharp tips, others curved, some minute, no larger than a pin, others the size of a butcher's cleaver. In the centre of the table, upon a wooden board, there was a pale, drying-out object. It was difficult to identify this object precisely at first. A piece of meat? The breast of a chicken, perhaps? But that wasn't it, and yet there was something so familiar about it. Something everyday about it. It was a something. And the name of that something was on the very tip of my tongue. And that, what a jolt, was it. It was a tongue. Very like a human one upon a trestle table. And I wondered if it was indeed a tongue. How did it get here? And where was the someone who'd lost it? There were other things besides tongues in this room. The most impressive part of the atelier I saw now was to be in the rosewood display cases. They're clearly labelled shelves running up and down, left and right, till they covered most of one wall. Among the labels, inscribed in sepia by fine calligraphic hand, were a host of words. Ossa, neurocranium, columnae vertebralis, articulatio sternoclavicularis, mucus temporalis, bulbus oculi, nervus vagus, organa genitalia. Near the tongue on that table was one more sign, this reading, lingua. I was beginning to understand, body parts, a room filled with them. There I was, a little girl, looking at all the parts of the body. We were being introduced. Bits and pieces of the human body, this is a little girl called Marie. Little girl called Marie, this is the body in pieces. I hovered beside Mother, still grasping her dress, but peered out at the spectacle. Curtius spoke now. Urogenital tract, with dangling bladder. Bones, from the femur, the strongest and largest, to the lacrimal, the tiniest and most fragile of the face. He was surveying the contents of his room. Many muscles, too, all labelled. Ten groupings of the head, from frontalis to the pterygodus internus. Many of the ribbons of arteries, from the superior thyroid to the common cartoid, 
veins too, the cerebellar, the anterior saphenius, the splenic and the gastric, the cardiac and the pulmonary. I have organs, individually resting on a bed of red velvet or displayed with their neighbours in the wooden bottles. The impressive intricacy of the ear's osseous labyrinth or the long, thick clouds of intestines, both the small and the large, such long and winding ways. Mother was regarding the room, looking increasingly unwell. Curtius must have noticed her horror, for he continued now very hurriedly, I made them! I made them! My osseous labyrinth, and my gallbladder, and my ventricles. I made them. They are models only, that is, replicas. I didn't mean, I'm not used, I do apologise. What can you think of me? Don't think them real. They look real, of course. Don't they look real? You must say yes. You know you must say yes. Oh yes, very real, but they're not. No. Though they do look it. Yes. Because in fact, you see, I made them. We turned to look at him. We had been so surprised at the objects all about this room that we had failed at first to study the most significant object of all, Dr. Curtius and the light. Curtius was a young man, it now appeared, at least younger than mother. When I had seen his long shadowy form move about itself in the darkness, I had assumed him to be old. But now I saw him both long and thin, shy and passionate and young, breathing excitedly. Six feet or more of leanness rising far above us in the corner of the atelier, his thin nostrils flaring slightly now. He was so clearly proud of his room, watching us looking at his work. His cheeks pulled inwards, never out as he breathed. His nose stretched down his long face like a tightrope. Veins sprawled across the sides of his forehead, thickly and thinly. Finally, the enormous slender hands of this strange man met before his narrow chest. I thought he might be about to pray, but instead he began to clap. It was not a loud noise, but an excited little beating, as of a small pleased child at the promise of something sweet to eat, a happy noise that sounded out of place in this room. His upper body stooped over his clapping hands, as if some pale bird were trapped in there, flapping before his heart, and he was anxious that it should not escape. <laughs> He's <Wow>. so cute! <laughs> he sounds like something that should be in, like, Coraline or something. <laughs> right? That's exactly... And then this is what I want to show you, is that one of my favourite aspects of this book, apart from the writing style, is... Oh. The illustration. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, the illustrations of this book, um, obviously you guys can't see it, but they are every two or three pages, mm. and sometimes they dominate the whole page, Yeah. Um, and sometimes they're just sort of in one corner, uh, so like, this is yeah. one. Yeah, we should um, post them on the Instagram. Yeah, we will. But the effect is quite unnerving when you get to a full page one like that of Curtius's face, because mm. it's all black, Yeah. and yeah. it's just his face coming out of the shadows. But yeah... I love Dr. Curtius. He's just hes just a man that loves his wax. Yeah. <laughs> and he seems so scary. And that's what I mean about this book, is that it takes everything that should be mm. really uncanny and terrifying mm. and makes it wholesome. Yeah. Which is lovely. It's lovely. And so I've just got one more passage, because I know that the, those were both quite long. But this one is from when Little and Dr. Curtius have journeyed to Paris, because they start off in Switzerland. Okay. And they've begun making wax busts of famous or notable people. Okay. Um, and without giving too much of the plot away, to begin with, he's just an anatomist, so he's just making models for the hospital. Mm-hmm. But then he does a cast of Little's head 
to show her how it works. Mm-hmm. And then he begins making heads. Right. So now he's making heads of famous people. They kind of join forces with this greedy widow and her son Edmund, who little befriends. And the widow moves the business into this big building, which is called the Monkey House, because it was literally a house full of monkeys Ooh. before they move in. Okay. But all the monkeys died. Oh. Terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying. And I'll show you before I start the, oh. the illustration of the monkeys, which is just so oh, horrific. Oh, wow. <laughs> they look like Star Wars characters. Yeah. Like, monkeys are quite scary anyway, and there's a whole, like, I'm not going to read it out, but there's a whole bit before this where Little has a conversation with the monkey man that owned the house before, and he's, like, lost his marbles, and he's talking to this dead monkey carcass. It's very disturbing. Um, (laughs) But this is not that. (laughs) This is Little cleaning the house, because she's the servant, and the widow and Dr. Curtius and Edmund have all gone out. Okay. The house needed such a deal of cleaning that all four of us went about it at first, mopping and sweeping. After several hours, it looked really very little better, but Curtius was coughing uncontrollably and had to be taken out. The widow and her son would promenade with him. I should stay behind and carry on the work. Hello, I quietly said to it after they left. The response was creaks and scratching. I closed my eyes and felt them moving then. All the unhappy spirits of dead monkeys running at me, swinging for me, curling up their lips, showing me their teeth. I'm not frightened. The house clicked. Something fell within the walls. You're a very grand place, I know. Something upstairs groaned. I'm going to live here. I've come to live here. Dust seemed to gather up and whirl about me. Do your worst, why don't you? I've nowhere else to go. I'm staying. I mean to work you, house, until we are friendly. A crack, then. A crack that started small but grew in noise until it was a long shriek. It was the crutches, I thought. The crutches outside, adjusting to the new weight of me. Please, I said, let us come to an understanding. A scurry upstairs as if someone or something were running along the landing. But when I went up, nobody was there. It wasn't right, I thought, to leave me alone in such a place, with all these afternoon spirits itching to attack. Very well then, I called to the house. Do go ahead and crush a child. Here I stand. Go on, I'll not fight you. A door swung open. No one came out. No one was there. I know you're unhappy, but come, let's talk to one another and feel at home together. So it's true, you have swallowed me, and I mean, O big house, to nurture you to be wholesome to your great insights, to fill you up. Even me, your supper, little chitterling that I am, small beer. I'll tell you everything. I'll give myself to you. I cannot say whether it was my fanciful thinking or not, but the house seemed to breathe a little then and let me touch it without unhappiness and learn its every corner. This was where I lived now, inside the beast, and I would make it the best of all possible beasts. As I swept, as I spoke to the place and told it who I was and what I had learned and how much I wished to work with my master again and how good was his work and how Edmund had showed me his doll and that though he might seem a very quiet fellow, he was still company and that the house should be good to him for though he could be self-important, he was actually not unpleasant with his freckles about his nose and his white chest. The mother, though, I told the house, do feel free to trip her feet 
to gnaw her in her sleep, to make her miserable as such a fine and glorious abode can. As I spilled all to the large place, as I felt less frightened and more at home, there came a dull murmur, a storm approaching from a distance. I thought at first it was a great colony of the dead monkey folk come to visit me, but then I understood these were new sounds, not from the nervous house, but from beyond, from the boulevard outside. It was the noise of shutters opening, of door bolts being pulled across, of wooden planks being laid down in the mud, a flame whooshing into life, then a sound like the clearing of a hundred throats, and a murmuring of a hundred voices slowly rising up in volume, as if the boulevard de Temple itself was being wound up by those voices, stoked into life, until there was no quiet any more, no pause to interrupt the great noise that spread over everything and was amplified alarmingly inside the empty container of the monkey house. The Boulevard du Temple, the entertainment district of Paris, a living and painted creature, was waking up. I ran upstairs. From a window I watched the boulevard swelling with people, from the repairer of broken china to the rat catcher, from the water carrier to the sedan chair carrier, from the feather merchant to the brick maker, people of Paris were coming in. Here opposites mixed. Flower-covered wig-maker's assistants walked behind coal-carriers thick with black dust. And among them were the boulevard people, shouting. Itinerant musicians, men with puppets, toy-sellers, actors in bright costumes, a man walking a great bear, blind men playing fiddles, children singing, old men dancing, flame-swallowers, sword-swallowers, a great circus of extraordinary people, all here was living. The noise of the boulevard echoed so loud inside the monkey house that I did not hear the doors open below, nor the widow enter the building until she was upon me. I was roughly instructed to return to the main hall, and there to keep brushing until the hideous animal smell was gone. But that smell would never entirely leave us. When it was time to sleep, the widow, summoning monkey shadows all around her, took the light upstairs and with it Edmund and my master. In the darkness I heard shouting and weeping and laughter coming from the boulevard. Many of the noises seemed to originate from the house directly opposite, labelled the Celestial Bed and, in slightly smaller letters, Dr James Graham, late of London. Peeping through a shutter, I saw people arrive there late into the night, sometimes couples, sometimes single men. Twice in the night the doors of the monkey house were noisily rattled from outside by unseen hands. I tried very hard not to sleep, for my fear was up again and I was not certain it was altogether safe to surrender to sleep in such a place. But eventually, exhausted, I closed my eyes. I dreamed of a monkey, sitting on the kitchen chair, rocking back and forth, staring at me with huge eyes. As I sat up, in bed, in terror, I saw that someone indeed was there. It was Edmund. <laughs> That was very disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? Like, but it's not the waxworks that are scary. Yeah. It's the house and yeah. the monkey and the widow and the boulevard of <laughs> circus people mm. that is also terrifying. And I know that I've obviously not said a lot about the waxworks, but it's to avoid spoilers. Yeah. But you can tell from like Doctor Curtius's love of them that that's like a nice yeah, part of yeah, the yeah. book. But the houses. Obviously, it says in that little prologue, many houses, each bigger than the last. Mm. And that effect becomes something really quite menacing as she moves to bigger and bigger mm. houses. Okay. Which becomes very interesting when you think of it in terms of Madame Tussauds. Yeah. Because they're obviously 
very large buildings. Mm. So yeah, there's loads I haven't said about this book. You know, she goes to Versailles, which is like a fun interlude Mm. to the plot. She falls in love. She lives through the terror. She like experiences loss. It's like, it's a massive story. Mm -hmm. But what I think makes it special and what all of those passages have in common is that it's like a little bit disconcerting and a little bit uncanny because it sounds familiar as if it's like a fairy tale or like Dickens or something. Mm -hmm. But it's not that. Yeah. It's a very modern story in a lot of ways. And I think that that does the subject matter justice because obviously waxworks are a little creepy because they're familiar, but they're also strange. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's that's pretty much it. It's just a really strange book. <laughs> and I will reread it, and I don't normally say that. Mm. So Yeah, I, w- I really want to read that. Yeah, yeah, I think you'd love it. I think you'd be hard-pushed to find the person that wouldn't love it. <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds like bizarre in the best way. It's great. <laughs> also, I picked it up on such a whim because I liked the cover and my favourite physics teacher was called Carrie. Yeah. Did we not buy those on the same day? Remember Maybe. Remember you, you bumped into me in Waterstones? Yeah. I feel like that's what I bought. <laughs> Interesting. How nice. <laughs> I love also that like this town is small enough that like we, we bumped into each other. We, bu- yeah. <laughs> we didn't go there together. We just both happened to be there. <laughs> For writing this week, we thought it would be fun to have a bit of a check-in with each other's writing, since we haven't done that in ages, actually. Mm -hmm. So, Emily, how's your writing? What's new? (laughs) Still working away on my novel. (laughs) So yeah, in terms of where where I am with that, I'm like almost finished my second draft. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd like explain what that means for me, because Mm -hmm. like a lot of writers have like different drafting processes. So basically I finished my first draft in it's either January or February. I think it was January. Year. Yeah, I think I think it was January. Um my first draft was something that you guys might have heard writers say before, which was just like me telling the story to myself. So I had like the plot, dialogue, like the emotions my character needed to have in each scene, some sort of like vague description of surroundings, stuff like that. But yeah, my second draft has been a lot harder because on reread, I realised I had to remove a character, (sighs) which meant removing or rewriting some scenes. And I also had a whole sequence of events that I needed to like change the order of. Um, And I'm almost done that now. I've like just got a few more scenes I need to edit. Sort of looking forward once I've done that, once I've done like the structural edits, I hopefully don't have to like change anything else. Mm. I just have to like make it pretty. That's <laughs> and, the nice bit. Yeah, like make it sound good and look good and like hopefully make it acceptable to like send out. Uh, and my goal is to do that by the end of the year, but honestly, I don't know if I will just because this time of year is quite busy mm. for me. So, like, it might be into next year. But I don't think it'll be too far into next year. Mm, by the maybe time like January, February again. Yeah, so that's fine by me. I also wanted to just add that I found this stage really hard. <laughs> like, this is the stage where I really, like, questioned everything and almost gave up. Yeah. And all of that, like, negative I'm not going to lie, like, I didn't think that you... I've always been really, like, <laughs> jealous 
I'm going to say jealous, not resentful, because, like, I didn't resent you for it, but I was like, how are you always so positive and, like, motivated about writing, and then seeing you have an absolute mental breakdown on the second draft, I'm like, part of me feels better, but I wish that you didn't have to go through it. Yeah. No. But, like, I, but that's kind of why I want to say it. Yeah. Like, because... Everyone goes through that stage, and the point is that I've stuck with it, and it's because like deep down I do actually like it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So yeah, I just I know a lot of writers listen to this podcast, and I guess I just want to say like you're not alone. <laughs> um, and now that I've done those huge edits, like I feel so much better for it. Yeah, your whole like, like demeanor <laughs> has changed. You just looked so sad yeah. for a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah, it it, so yeah, it was just a case of like breaking everything it needed done into like the tiniest bite-sized bits. Mm-hmm. Like I'd just be like, all I need to do today is think about, you know, changing X thing. Mm-hmm. And then like the next day I'd be like, okay, so I've thought about how I'm going to do it. So I'm going to copy and paste. I'm going to move the stuff about, but that's all I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I'd be like, okay, I'm actually going to like edit <laughs> like I was like <laughs> I had to baby myself so I wouldn't like cry <laughs> every time that I sat down to look at it um so yeah that's where I am feeling a lot better about it now but oh my god that was a rough like probably like month or two months where yeah. I was just constantly stressing about how much <laughs> I had to change it was a rough summer it was <laughs> a rough writing summer <laughs> oh but... how how about you Oh, Jesus. So my thing's quite long, but it's because I feel like I haven't actually said anything about my writing for about a year that, w- <laughs> that wasn't, I haven't been writing. <laughs> yeah. Like, obviously for me, for people that don't know, I work as a full-time arts journalist, so I am writing all the time, mm. every day. And I've actually done some articles that I'm really proud of, so I thought that I would shout them out, first of all. I did my first ever comment piece a couple of months back, so that's like an opinion piece about the drag queen Ellie Diamond and I interviewed her as well about her journey on RuPaul's Drag Race and like about being part of the queer community here in Dundee and that was amazing like that was a life highlight not just a writing highlight and also I did a piece with this German choreographer called Elizabeth Schilling which was very cool all about this lockdown art project Invisible Dances where dancers show up unannounced in the middle of the night in towns all over the world and they dance for no one in empty streets and their movements are traced using temporary biodegradable spray paint Mm. and then the next morning the streets are all covered with this like invisible dance and so they came to a town nearby and we did this whole middle of the night expedition and I loved doing that (laughs) so in terms of like my day job of writing it's very very difficult (laughs) but there are highlights and that's been good Mm -hmm. however because of that my own writing has taken a bit of a back seat Mm. Um, in the past year just due to work and life but back in April I did do Sabrina Benham's six week poetry course which really helped me to just keep going when I didn't Mm -hmm. feel inspired so if you're feeling not inspired to write but you want to keep writing then I would recommend doing a little academic-y thing Mm -hmm. just to keep your hand in Um, obviously I had the privilege of being able to afford that and not everyone can but there usually are free options yeah so yeah I would recommend that and then in June I did a 20 poems in 20 days challenge run by Bookleaf Publishing as you know Mm -hmm. 
that was really difficult. <laughs> um, I'm not going to lie, because I still wasn't feeling very inspired or like in tune with my creative side. And I had to write a poem every day for 20 days. And it's hard to do anything every day for 20 days, mm. for me, anyway. <laughs> but I'm glad that I did it, because I've managed to create another chapbook out of it, meaning that I now have two which are waiting to be published, which is nice. Is it my favourite thing that I've ever created? No. But is it finished? Yes. <laughs> so, like, you know. And it kind of taught me the lesson that, like, not everything that you make is going to feel... You're not going to feel like that big magic rush and for like every it was single like the thing. best thing ever yeah. that you've done. Yeah. But you still have to, if you want to be a working writer, you have yeah. to work and yeah, write. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I feel like that's kind of brought home to me now that I'm like... Mm-hmm. You can like some things better than others, but it doesn't mean the things you like less are not good. Mm -hmm. So, we love that. (laughs) I'm also about to do my first ever songwriting session with friend of the podcast, Dee Fretter, this weekend, which will have happened by the time this comes out. (laughs) But I'm really excited about that because I've been wanting to try writing songs for ages, but I'm not a musician. So, (laughs) it'll be nice to work with a musician. Yeah. And the final thing that I want to say on my writing is that I don't know if anyone listening to this episode remembers the idea that I had earlier in the year where I asked for people's examples of like city magic Mm -hmm. but a few people sent me in little stories from their own lives and I said that I was going to do something with it and then I hadn't I haven't posted anything about it but I actually used that idea as the basis of this poetry collection that I did Mm -hmm. so for anyone that sent those in thank you because (laughs) you helped me when I didn't know what I was going to write about And it's made the theme of that collection come together as being, like, cities and the way that that they can be special. Yeah. So, yeah. It's been not a great year for writing, but I feel like the important thing is that I have made myself do it anyway. Yeah. There's a theme for this year. It's perseverance. Yes. (laughs) We have have both persevered, even (laughs) though it has kind of sucked. (laughs) But... I'm sure that future us will be very happy that we did that. Yeah. Did you have any little excerpts or anything that you wanted to share? Yeah, so I actually asked friend of the podcast, Stephanie, to give me a quote because she's read my book and I didn't know what to pick. Mm -hmm. So I was like, can you just pick for me? And she did. So this was her first choice. It's just like a couple, a few lines. And I will say I've like, I've taken the names out Mm. because I don't want to reveal them. So it's just just says she a lot. So yeah, this is a little exchange between my two main characters. Can I see your tattoo? I asked. The drink had made me bolder, or made me care less, or made me reckless. Or maybe it was the argument, the extreme emotion we'd let out at each other. She frowned, then smiled. She wordlessly slipped her t-shirt up a few inches, holding the soft fabric in place. There she was, the girl sunken into her skin. I like her, I said. She's in bloom, she said. I think that's why I wanted her. She's a bit like me. I wanted to say that I don't picture her with a head of flowers, but instead a head of stars, of constellations, brilliant pieces of light that shimmer and twinkle and capture imagination, that she is a guiding force, a point in the sky to return to over and over. But I didn't. Oh, <laughs> I love your brain. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I know the main characters, so I love that. <laughs> so sweet. Thanks. Do you have anything to share? Yeah, sure. 
I have <laughs> I have poems, obviously, from this collection. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd give you... I've picked three, and I thought I'd give you the choice of mood. Okay. Um, and you can tell me which one. So I have a silly one, or a sad one, or a kind of creepy one. I mean, do we do creepy, because this is the Halloween sure. episode? Yeah. Sure. I'll go for creepy. So this one has a nice story behind it. I used to have a boyfriend that thought that, you know, trees that are like purple instead of green. Mm-hmm. He's like, don't fucking trust those trees. They look like they're from another planet. <laughs> okay. And this just always has stuck with me since I was a teenager. So this is called the Martian trees. Okay. Okay, so the thing about the red trees is that no, you don't have to talk to them. But it doesn't hurt. See, someone I used to love daily told me the red leaf trees were from Mars and really, who was I to question the word of love? And you can see it, can't you? The fleshy oddness of that bruise-bloomed foliage, its capillaried growth blotting up among the green. You can imagine it spat from that angry rock, root ball hawked in a comet through the black blue and biding there, just one silent tumour taking hold from the inside and popping out all over the place. My pedestrian love would practice crow's feet and say those trees give me the creeps, and since you can't prove a disbelief, it seemed to me the logical thing to just chat away, just in case. Like, hello Mr Martian Tree, I see you've taken up residence in the cracks on my street. I do hope you're not missing your home planet too much today. Your stems have a lovely cherry wine glow in the June light, you know, and so on. And so you see, don't you, how alien is actually a verb, even for love. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. So this is the kind of random shit that comes out of my brain when I don't have a specific thing that I want to write about. Oh, I liked it. It was cute and creepy. Yeah. Do you have a quickfire favourite for us? I do. My quickfire favourite is not a new one. And I do think we've mentioned it on here before, maybe. But I watch it every spooky season, like, multiple times. And I had my first viewing the other day. It's Practical Magic. Practical Magic! I just feel like so much of my personality is in this film. (laughs) Um, I can't believe that I hadn't seen it till you made me watch it. I know. so much of my personality is in this film. True, true. So, for anyone who doesn't know, Practical Magic is a film about witches. It's about a family curse. It's about murder. But it's also very romantic. It's the most, like hopeless romantic spooky film except for maybe Tim Burton's Corpse Bride which to no one's surprise I also adore. (laughs) Yeah I'd say it's neck and neck to be honest. Yeah so yeah the plot follows the Owens family who are witches who are cursed anyone who falls in love with them dies and Sally did fall in love and she had children but her husband did die and so she tries to shut herself off from that ever happening again and essentially Sally and Jilly, her sister, kill Jilly's abusive boyfriend. They then have to cover up the murder from the detective who Sally is also falling for. And none of that is spoiler. It's like yeah, the setup. It's all set up. So you've got this curse in the romance with someone who's investigating the murder. The ghost of the abusive <laughs> boyfriend is haunting them. And then you've got the two aunties who are oh, just wonderful. The aunties like, are amazing. Midnight margaritas. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just think it's the perfect spooky season film for someone who 
like doesn't want to watch horror mm-hmm. um and i do love horror but for some reason when i think about halloween i think more about like this kind of film rather yeah. than like horror like autumnal with yeah. a dash of like whimsical spooky yeah like Coraline and corpse bride and like all the like those are just the films that i think of and also because you know it's this podcast i wanted to mention how it's quite a literary film there's a lot of letters written which become narration mm. um and i know it was a book originally but i haven't read it so i don't know if the quotes are from the book or not but i love this line that sally writes in a letter that sounds like something straight out of the starless sea it's i dream of a love that even time will lie down and be still for oh it's so good. <laughs> And I thought I'd read out the final lines of the film too, because I also really love those. So yeah, it's this like cute narration at the end. I won't say what the ending is, obviously, but she says, There are some things I know for certain. Always throw spilled salt over your left shoulder. Keep rosemary by your garden gate. Plant lavender for luck and fall in love whenever you can. Oh, it's so (laughs) nice. It's like Gilmore Girls, but like with magic. Yeah, that is basically what it is. Yeah. It's just wholesome, but like there's a murder. Yeah. (laughs) So good. So what is your quickfire favourite? Oh, mine isn't as fun, but um, (laughs) this is like really random. But recently I've been super into the siren myth and like siren imagery Mm -hmm. i don't know why it keeps coming up and i keep seeing it in stuff that i'm consuming so i thought i'd share my favorite siren themed poem because it uh, also ties into the idea of monsters and costumes okay and it's quite creepy apologies if i have read this one here before but i did look back and i don't think i have i don't remember you doing one about sirens this is siren song by margaret atwood who is a very talented poet Mm as well as being known for The Handmaid's Tale, so you can see that this is not going to be a happy poem. (laughs) But it's very short. This is the one song everyone would like to learn. The song that is irresistible. The song that forces men to leap overboard in squadrons, even though they see the beached skulls. The song nobody knows because anyone who has heard it is dead, and the others can't remember. Shall I tell you the secret... And if I do, will you get me out of this bird suit? I don't enjoy it here, squatting on this island, looking picturesque and mythical with these two feathery maniacs. I don't enjoy singing this trio, fatal and valuable. I will tell the secret to you. To you. Only you. Come closer. The song is a cry for help. Help me. Only you. Only you can. You are unique at last. Alas, it is a boring song, but it works every time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love it too. It's so sarcastic. But I also love it because I feel like people mix up sirens and mermaids. Mm. And sirens are not fishy ladies. They Mm. are bird ladies. And they often have the head of a bird and the body of a woman Mm -hmm. instead of like the body of a woman and the tail of a fish. Which is why they have a song, because birds sing. Mm. I feel like that, like gets glossed over in popular media a lot. So I yeah. like that she's stuck to the weird bird ladies. Yeah, I really want to read. How do you say it? Is it the Penel Penelopead Penel Penel <laughs> Penelopead? But like basically Margaret Atwood's version of like 
um, Odysseus and yeah. Penelope's. I really want to read it. Me too. But this reminded me as well of um, Cersei. Mm. You know, when she's like, uh, I don't enjoy it here looking picturesque and mythical. <laughs> yeah. I was like, that's very Cersei vibes. <laughs> have a root for us. I do. My root is like, dun dun dun, it's a little bit political today. Oh. But it is also relevant to Halloween. So obviously, as we've been doing, Halloween is often called spooky season and that's completely fine. However, spook does have a political and cultural meaning. Mm. In some places, it can be a kind of slur referring to black people. But I wanted to kind of dig into, right, okay, so what's the politics of this? What's the etymology of this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, why are we still calling it that then? So I just thought that I would read out this little chunk of an article that I found. And it says, Spook comes from the Dutch word for apparition or spectre. So this is me talking now. It is a word that refers to, like, ghosts. And so it is Halloweenian spirit. Mm-hmm. However... The noun was first used in English around the turn of the 19th century. Over the next few decades, it developed other forms like spooky, spookish, and of course the verb to spook. Spookish is an excellent word, by the way. Mm. From there, it seems the word lived in a relatively innocuous life for many years, existing in the liminal space between surprise and mild fear. It wasn't until World War II that spook started to refer to black people. The black army pilots who trained at the Tuskegee Institute were referred to as the Spookwaffe, with Waffe being the German word for weapon, or Gun Luftwaffe was the name of the German Air Force. So once the word Spook was linked to blackness, it wasn't long before it became a recognisable, if second-tier, slur. When I read more into this, there's a lot of linguists talking about, you know, the politics of should we still use the word... Is it okay to use it in terms of Halloween because of that Dutch meaning? And the general consensus, although of course I don't speak for anyone that isn't me, (laughs) seems to be that it's just important to consider the context when using the word, particularly in reference to costumes which emulate people from real life. Mm, So obviously Halloween has two kinds of vibes. Some (laughs) people go for like things that aren't real, ghosts and you know, monsters and other people will go for real people that were scary. Yeah. And I think that that, then it becomes important to decipher where you're using the word spooky. Yeah. Yeah, that Um, makes sense. But in general spooky season is fine. (laughs) (laughs) If you're referring to ghouls. (laughs) Yeah. But I just thought it was an interesting discussion and I would like to read more about it and if anyone has any input or thinks that that consensus is totally wrong, then I would very much like to hear it. Do you have an insight for us? Yes, so for my insight this week, I thought I would read out some more of Erin Morgenstern's Flax Golden Tales, because she has lots of creepy ones. (laughs) So yeah, just a reminder, these are our 10-sentence stories written in response to photographs. And the thing I like about Morgenstern's writing is that she does often write very creepy things, but because she has such a like lyrical, whimsical style, you almost fall into like a false sense of security mm-hmm. that it's, everything's going to be lovely. <laughs> so I have five today, because they're all very short. But I do want to start with an actually lovely one. Okay. Um, it's about autumn, 
and it's called the leaf painters. Sometimes the leaf painters are overly enthusiastic. You only get to paint once a year, after all. Sometimes fragile leaves are covered with so much colour that it overexcites and overwhelms their already temporary leaf natures. Some freshly painted leaves let go too soon, seduced by the promise of a dance with even the gentlest breeze. For other leaves, the new colours are so bright and hot and strange that they burn out like flames. They fall to the ground, crisp and brown, faded and exhausted and confused. Leaves are sensitive things. But once in a while, the painters get everything right. Reds and russets and oranges and golds gently applied and perfectly balanced, dancing with the lingering greens, not too much or too bright or too fast. And the painted leaves just glow, warm and surprised and delighted. Oh, <laughs> How sweet is that? That's like, you know, when we were driving the other day and I pointed out the big forest. Yeah. And I was like, that looks really good in about a month. Yeah. That's what that looks like. Warm. Yeah. What was it? Warm and delighted. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I've already scrolled past. Uh, warm and surprised and, and delighted. delighted. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so now I have two slightly more spooky ones. Uh-huh. This first one is called Boo. Ghosts are everywhere. They dwell in cabinets and old shoes and shrubberies waiting to sneak up on you when you least expect them. They hide in the scent of crisp leaves on windy days. They curl around your feet and pull you back into autumn's past with unanticipated force. They do not wait for you to be prepared. You might assume they are relegated to haunted places, cemeteries and abandoned houses and foggy moonlit depths of night. But ghosts are not afraid of the sun. They are everywhere, every time, and there is no avoiding them. Ghosts are not afraid of the sun. <laughs> what a fucking raw line. <laughs> and this one... I probably do need to give you like a wee bit of context of the photograph that accompanies it. It's like a close-up of someone's feet and they're wearing a pair of Converse. Okay. And it's called Impractical Footwear. How Tumblr 2012. (laughs) Are you really wearing those shoes? The girl next to me asks in the pre-midnight lull before everything starts, looking down at my feet. From her tone, I'm guessing her expression is some combination of incredulous and disgusted, but it's too dark to see much of her face. Well, yeah, I say, because they're the only pair I have. They have decent traction and I can run pretty fast in them. It's your funeral, she says, and I can see the dismissive shrug clearly in the moonlight as she turns away. She's wearing tall boots with zippers up the sides. They look heavy and they crunch the leaves a lot more than my sneakers do, so I don't get why she's playing the superior footwear card. After midnight, I get about ten paces before I figure it out. Tangled in cobwebs over a freshly turned grave. I should have guessed that shoes with laces give them something else to grab onto, making it that much harder to get away. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Yeah. (laughs) And finally, I have two about pumpkins. (laughs) This first one's called November Pumpkins. We love a basic bitch spice. (laughs) It is a sad thing to be a pumpkin after Halloween. No more light inside. No more chasing away evil spirits. No more revelry. Only the crunch of leaves and fading light and the growing chill in the autumn air. October, past and gone. Watching fallen comrades smash to pieces, rotting on the ground. Unable to close your eyes or look away. 
It is a sad thing to be a pumpkin in November. All they want you for is pie. <laughs> oh, so cute. <laughs> and this is my last one, and it is called pumpkin picking. You must pick a pumpkin. You are not allowed to leave without one. And trust us, you don't want to stay here. The pumpkins are more or less identical, relatively similar in size and shape, with some subtle deviations in stems and shades of orange. Their contents vary. Three contain fulfilments for wishes which must be wished immediately or the previously pumpkin-contained opportunities will vanish into the autumn air, forever lost. A few are occupied by tiny creatures, each unique and some more tameable than others. One holds instant death. Take your time, but you have to pick one. That's the rule. Oh my god! <laughs> That's like creepy in the same way that like Christmas creepy is creepy. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like when you get scary Christmas stories, that's like that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, those are my picks from our Morgan Stern's website because she had so many good like spooky ones, but those are my favourites. I love those. The boo one reminds me of my favourite, probably favourite ever Phoebe Bridger's line, which is um, that ghost is just a kid in a sheet. <laughs> I don't know why it brings me so much pleasure every single time that she sings it. It's because it's got nothing to do with the rest of the song. Yeah. And it just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and I just love, like, I don't know, I love the image of a mm. ghost. Like, I like the phrase, that ghost is just... Yeah, like, yeah. oh, it's just this. <laughs> so, our question this episode, forgot that word there, <laughs> that we have considered is which character would you like to dress up as hmm. that you haven't? Mm-hmm. So, what's your answer? I have a few. My issue is that I always, when I'm like reading a book, I always think like, oh, that would be a cool costume, and then by the time Halloween rolls around, I've forgotten. Mm-hmm. But I did think of a few, so I'd love to do Mirabel from the Starless Sea in her like Max King of the Wild Things costume. I wish the Starless Sea had been out when I had pink hair, because yeah. that would have been perfect. Also, Eleanor with like her rabbit ears and mask. That would be so cool. Yeah, I don't know why, but you know my white dress that I have. It's mm-hmm. like looks like a marshmallow. Yeah, I feel like that with a rabbit like mask yeah. would be really cool. Anyway, I'd love to do like a Six of Crows costume. That would be awesome. Yeah, that. like looks wise, I'd probably get away more with Nina, mm. or maybe even Wylan. But I would, I do think it'd be cool to like do a Kaz Brecker look somehow. Yeah, with his like cane and everything. Yeah, that'd be cool. And I thought I might as well mention this because she's a comic book character, <laughs> but I really want to do Wanda Maximoff's costume from the comics with like the pink yeah. and red. I just think it's so cute. It is cute. <laughs> I really think you should do that at some stage in life. Yeah, I think I'll do it next year. That's what I'm thinking. Anyway. Nice. But yeah, those were the those were like the ones that first came to my head. I also picked Mirabelle. Did you? Because <laughs> you've actually converted me. But I'd like to do where it's like the max gown but it's the one at the end where she has all the embroidered stories oh yeah on it um and i've actually seen some really cool like cosplays of it that's cool and i was just like i would love to do that Mm -hmm. and i also wish that i had pink hair (laughs) to do because i did have pink hair i know 
I could make mine pink again, but it's just yeah. I've just got it to go a nice blonde. Yeah. <laughs> I did also see just today actually Erin Morgenstern posted it's to do with the night circus. Mm. Oh, the dress. The dress with the wrought iron pattern on it, and I'm like, that would be cool. That I would quite cool. like. I could dress as Celia because she does have like dark hair, mm. so I could maybe do Celia one day. That would be amazing. I was thinking though, we could so do Eleanor and Mirabel, because mm. I could, I could tint my hair pink. Yes. <laughs> You'd could. have to strip yours and bleach yours and everything. <laughs> yeah. Or buy a wig. Or buy... Oh, yeah, I forgot that wigs Wigs do exist. But I... See, I've bought wigs for Halloween before, though, and it's just not worth it. No. Because you're so uncomfortable the whole night. I know. But yeah, no, we could... That'll be a long night of explaining to everyone who you're dressed as, but I wouldn't care. I mean, (laughs) realistically, who... Like, we're going to have... If we were having a Halloween party, we wouldn't have to explain shit. We could just be like... (laughs) We'll put a notice on the door. Yeah. like, I'm a rabbit, Okay. (laughs) That's like I'm, all, not, I'm not really, I am. That's all that Eleanor would say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I'll be like, I'm fate. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> oh, uh, that'd be so fun. Yeah. But yeah, I was thinking about it and I couldn't really think of any other ones. My go-to is usually Alice from Alice in Wonderland because like, yeah. I have a blue dress and white socks and black shoes. So yeah it's easy enough and then you can make yourself look dead or some shit you know yeah to the zombie alice i know i was just talking with my mum actually about like because i don't know what i'm doing for halloween this year like if i'm going to be going to a party or not mm. i was like i better have a costume on standby mm. just in case and all i can think is that i now own a like blue gingham dress so i'm like oh great guess i'm dorothy oh yeah <laughs> i don't even like the wizard of oz that much i love the wizard of oz but yeah i don't it's not really your vibe is it like, I don't mind it. See, I, oh. yeah, my, mine has got to just be Alice. I don't know what else I've got in my wardrobe that I could make into a costume. Yeah. It's that, or you wear it all black and paint some blood on you and you're a vampire, which I've done before. But yeah, it's so boring. It is boring, though. I feel like I would rather be, I don't know, I feel like I'd rather look really homemade. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't know. If you had to be Dorothy, I've got dungarees, I could be a scarecrow. <laughs> True. <laughs> True. It would make it make a bit more sense. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no. Halloween costumes are fun, and I am supposed to be going to a party, but I mm. don't. And I've been informed that costumes are not optional. Mm. You will not be let in without a good costume. Fair enough. So I don't know what I'm gonna do, but yeah, I'd love to be Mirabel. I don't think that's gonna happen this year though, because that's gonna take a lot of research. Yeah, I don't think this year, but one day. One day. <laughs> is us this week if you have any comments or questions in our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com we also have social media which is linked in the show notes along with everything we talked about today including the infatuated mix which has all the music we mentioned i'm going to link my halloween playlist there too hey it's a really really good halloween playlist guys (laughs) and yeah please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out there happy halloween enjoy (laughs) Bye. bye